0: This is a 3CR podcast.
1: And this is Published or Not. In these times of isolation, we are all experiencing for the first time and we are doing it together. But being a parent for the first time can bring a sense of isolation and be fraught with difficulties. Anne Bust is back again with another ripper of a story in the long shadow. Welcome back, Anne. Thank you for having me Jan. Oh pleasure. Isabel and her two-year-old son Noah and husband Dean have just arrived in a New South Wales country town Riley. Well I know that's a pretend but it's close to Dubbo and we know Dubbo. She hopes it will only be for a short time as they've just come from New Zealand. Why are they there?
2: This I mean as often happens to to new mums, she's sort of going where her husband's job is taking her and her job is coming secondary at this point in time. And her husband is a bit of a, a red Adair of hospital fixes. So any hospital that is struggling, um, he is the person that goes in, looks at the finances, looks at the management and tells them what they have to do to fix it.
1: And this country town is all about the hospital.
2: Yeah, it's one of those towns that sort of is um, the main... Um, the employer is, in this case, the hospital. So it's the centre of this, this town.
1: Well, prior to coming there, we learned that something's happened to, in the past. Their marriage is a bit rocky and Isabel's own confidence in being a good mother is in question. She's asked to run a mother's group for the first-time mothers or is it a therapy group? Now, who has asked her to do this and what are her qualifications? Well,
2: she isn't actually entirely sure who's asked to her in the first instance. Uh, She's pretty sure that her her husband has heard her grumbles that she's sick of not being able to work um, and that he's lined it up for her. And she is a psychologist, so she's a qualified psychologist, but given that she's had a child and she's only 28, uh, she hasn't had much experience. It actually takes a good five years um, to get to be a psychologist. And after that, you, know, you need a lot of supervision. So she's, she's pretty green and she's only ever sort of watched someone do it. So it is a therapy group. Um, the maternal child health nurses put together the women under somewhat sufferance, um, cause she doesn't think that Izzy is really old enough to be able to do this and that she should be doing it herself. And, but this group of women do have some issues with depression and anxiety
1: in particular. So she 's well qualified to manage that, and, and there 's there's a connection with the hospital with Sarah, one of the mothers. What does she do at the hospital?
2: Um, yes, so we 've got a, a GP that's um, not currently working as a GP but married to one of the gps and in fact, because it 's a small hospital uh, in a small town, um, everyone has attachments in one way or another to the hospital and again that 's really why I said it in a small town because I wanted these women to have connections that you wouldn't normally have in a mother-baby group. Normally you're meeting for the first time, whereas these mums all know each other and there's history there.
1: And Rasheen, how is she connected to the hospital?
2: So Rasheen um, works in administration in the hospital. She's a nursing background but then did administration and uh, works in that
1: section of the and hospital her family her, uh, her brother works at the hospital and also her father Connor he does repairs at the hospital
2: her brother's a nursing aide there. All uh, so yeah there's lots of yeah. connections there and, and they, they don't want to think...
1: close down but it's a past situation that connects Kate the policewoman and Tegan. what happened at this hospital 25 years ago
2: Well, Tegan, of course, is only 23. So Tegan wasn't around at the time. But as we learn, baby was kidnapped from the hospital 25 years ago that happens to be Tegan's older brother. And it's that secret that lays there. The other women, uh, Sophie didn't come from town, so she married into uh, town, so she wasn't there. But certainly Roisin and Kate were old enough to have memories of this and the impact it had on their families and how their mothers reacted to a baby being kidnapped in their own anxiety. The current doctor
1: there, Dr Chris, what happened to his wife? Well, he lost his wife related to having a baby as well. And basically antiquated machinery in the the hospital. He's on a, a mission to improve the hospital
2: and he's getting a lot of resistance. It's also steeped in the politics of the area, not just hospital politics, but the National Party politics in the area. And Of course, one of the women in the group is the daughter-in-law of the local politician. Everyone has a different angle on this, and poor Izzy, sitting in the middle of it, needs to make sense of what is actually happening and what is an, an understandable reactive anxiety to what's been in the past, now they have their own children, and what is something actually new and potentially truly threatening.
1: We've got Chris standing for pre-selection and also Sophie's husband Lachlan standing for pre-selection. So who holds the seat now? So
2: it's Sophie's father-in-law, Lachlan's father, is the incumbent politician and he's been the politician there for the last 30 years So he's decided to retire, trying to pave the way for Mm. his son into that role.
1: This is Gordon Barclay. Nothing happened in Riley without his approval. And his wife, Grace, by name and nature, they're the political and social elite, really, with their sons, Lachlan, and wife, Sophie, and uh, Matthew. In this very first getting acquainted mothers group, Isabel asked the five women to anonymously write about parenting. There were four letters back. One said, all that matters is my child, but how do I know what's best for it? Another one said, me equals crap, mum. And another, why didn't anyone tell me motherhood was so hard? A fourth, all children deserve the best chance. And the fifth note, what did the fifth note say? This is the first line of your book, The Long Shadow. What was it? The baby killer is going to strike again. i would like to draw on your own experience in perinatal psychiatry to describe what postpartum psychosis
2: is? The five women in the group, I tried to make them as diverse and representative, I guess, of people that I have seen without, none of them are my patients, but obviously you see many, many women over many years. So one of them I have had suffer from postpartum psychosis, which is the very rare severe form of postpartum depression and probably an actual different illness. Uh, occurs in one in 600 women. Mm-hmm. Um, very biologically based. Certainly if you have a family history of bipolar disorder, you're much more likely to get it. But it's usually a very acute onset, usually within a week, month of having a baby. It has a, often has a mood component, but it can also very significantly distort how you're thinking and you can have hallucinations and delusions as well. So Zara, um, and, it, and it can affect anyone. Um, so hence why I, I had Zara have it, because I have had doctors who have had postpartum psychosis and lawyers and mm. shop stewards and all sorts it doesn 't it goes across all um, boundaries for the social milieu, and Sarah has actually had an inpatient stay in Sydney recovered enough to now return home and hence why the maternal child health nurse suggested her for the group
1: Well Isabel knows about this because her own mother had it now Isabel is getting threatened. Oh, you you were very inventive in a lot of the ways that Isabel was threatened. Dog poo in her letterbox, as well as a, a big jar of treacle. Message in the dust on the back of the car. And what the message said, go home. The dead kangaroo shot and dragged across the driveway just before the bridge. Now, this all sounds like a horrible place, but then you describe a really lovely country pub from page 15. Anne use. would you please read about Riley Arms Hotel? The
2: Arms was an old-style pub with an uneven bare floor, sticky in spots, a long wooden bar top and shelves lined with glasses and a sparse selection of liquor. Dean ordered a neat scotch, was told that they didn't do shots. Community decision. Dean let them add soda. I guess that a cosmopolitan would be asking too much, even if cocktails weren't on the restricted list. It didn't look like a pub. The pub ran cranberry juice. Dry white wine? Thanks. A footy team board was in prime position. Rugby, not AFL. There were a few framed black and white photos of racehorses, apparently once a year there was an event in Riley, and a couple showing ancient cricket matches. In a series on another wall, floodwaters lapped at the door of the sandbagged hotel. A rowboat navigated between roofs. And an army helicopter was winching people to safety. Floods of 1990. The river was at least 500 metres away, and currently, the muddy brown stream was four metres below the bridge. It was hard to
1: imagine. Just below the bridge. So, where do you have Isabel and her husband Dean and uh, baby Noah? Where are they living?
2: They're out of town. So they're 10k's out of town on basically what would have been one of the manager's properties in the day, and. In my childhood, I stayed in one of these. My father was a, a frustrated farmer and we stayed up in farms outside of Albury in very similar sort of places. So I was able to tap into that when I wrote about that. Riley is, as you said, fictitious, but it's very not only close to Davo, it resembles in some ways um, Ningen, mm-hmm. uh, which pub not dissimilar to the one I described I moved it around and as I said it is fictitious but inspired by <laughs> the actual locations.
1: So we have the building up of suspense the remoteness the lack of mobile reception the owls intense heat and all of this perhaps before a flooding but you break this suspense with the fate the hospital fundraiser and uh, the highlight of this day is the football match. So, what did she think of rugby? Something perhaps shared with yourself and you? Well,
2: Dee, her husband comes from an AFL family, and of mm. course, she's from Melbourne. She's definitely more an AFL person. And not that I know much about AFL, but at least I have been to some AFL matches. Well, when I went up to investigate, and there's reasons that the book is set where it is set from a geographical point of view, is it was very clear from the pub and everywhere else and my editors who came from the region. I guess I'm just going to have to do some rugby research. So I actually, there's an amazing number of online rugby matches that you can watch. So I, I did indeed do that and I figured I didn't have to be an expert because, of course, my character has never seen a rugby match either. So it's coming from her perspective that you get this rugby match with with Kate, the local, kind of giving a little bit of a description of what's really happening. The, the rugby match is there for a reason um, oh. as well. And while it might be a, a break in the tension, the break doesn't last
1: very it, long. It certainly does not. But I think one of the best lines that came out of this, Isabel was told, it's not scum, it's a scrum. <laughs> what happened then? Dean comes out to play, ends up in hospital, a child goes missing, and then Isabel finds herself alone, remote. So is this Isabel- what we're all building up towards? Oh, yeah. are we ever? Is Isabel a better detective than she is a psychologist? Can she solve the mystery of a baby's murder and prevent another possible tragedy? Oh, Anne Buse, it was an absolute ripper, as I started off saying. Really good page turner. Congratulations. Thank you, Jan. I've been speaking with Anne Buse about her book, The Long Shadow, published by Text. And now it's time for David.
0: There is an illegal global trade in ivory in L.A. Larkin's thriller... Pray, but this trade reaches into the far corners of the political world, and it's up to her heroine Olivia Wolfe, to investigate what's happening. So Louisa, welcome back to 3CR.
3: Hi David. It's lovely to be back. Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Now, you talk a great deal in this novel about the ivory trade, and it's not just the poacher. Uh, working at the lowest level, it seems to pervade every level of society.
3: Yes. So the story of Price starts, in fact, in England um, and travels all the way to South Africa where um, this illegal trade is taking place and is being run by some pretty scary criminal syndicates. But it starts in the UK with the discovery by Olivia Wolfe, the central character who's an investigative journalist, that there is something odd going on with a very senior cabinet minister who has an offshore bank account with millions in it which is dodgy definitely a tax fraud thing but you know it goes on a lot except and this is the except that catches Olivia Wolfe's eye the account is has two signatories and the second one is the signatory um he is a poor South African school teacher Who lives in Soweto Um, and that's what propels Olivia Wolf initially to start investigating the story and will take her from the UK to South Africa and on a collision course with a quite a terrifying criminal syndicate.
0: Now this is what interests me because not only do we have the murders and we might be able to come back to the murders that occur in this story But you go into great detail about the ivory trade and the reasons for it and it's both financial as well as sort of prestige associated with it as well so let's investigate this a bit more Uh, people actually drink ground up ivory horn
3: what are they in fact drinking they're drinking keratin which is basically fingernails so how this all came about was uh, um, I've always been um, very interested in wildlife conservation and I went and did some volunteer work uh, on a reserve in South Africa And um, they were being attacked regularly by poachers for their rhinos, for the horn. And what the link is, is that this trade happens, starts in South Africa, but ends up with it being sent illegally into Vietnam, which is the primary market. China is a secondary market and some some Middle Eastern countries are also markets. It's um, used by businessmen. Um, When they are shaking hands on deals, um, it's a sort of bit of a prestige thing to have, you know, a dead rhino's horn sitting on your desk. Um, They also grind it up into a powder so that they can drink it, which is supposed to cure all sorts of things from the common cold to erection problems. You know, it's, um, oh, and cancer as well. Um, So recently um, there have been claims on that, all of which have been disproved, by the way.
0: This would seem to suggest that the trade is based in a fabricated view of the value of rhino horn.
3: This belief is centuries old. Um, It is Many, many, many people believe that the horn has these um, curative qualities. A lot of the time it's been discovered that the horn that's been ground up has actually been mixed in, for instance. So if you're not feeling well and have a fever, it's mixed in with um, some form of painkiller. Therefore, it appears to be doing, you know, the, the thing medically that people want it to be done. Um, And there are such differing views on what should be done. Well, here's Uh, an
0: interesting thing about those differing views, because there are people advocating that the ivory trade should be, in fact, uh, made more liberal um, and to uh, take off the restrictions that are on the ivory trade.
3: What's the rationale behind that? There are two kind of key camps on on how to handle the decimation of rhino populations. And one of them is the very traditional one, which, um, you know, most people would think is that as long as you ban the illegal trade, the trade in the horn, um, there's no reason to kill them. And then there is the other argument, which is, um, and I try and put forward both arguments in the book through the characters, you know, the characters have strong views. Um, and this other one is that, in fact, well, banning it only makes it illegal, it sends it underground, it, makes it, the, it puts it into the hand of the criminals who are brutal, and it's not actually working. The rhinos are still being killed because the, the illegal trade makes the rhino horn so incredibly valuable and the price goes up and up and up and up. And rhino horn at the moment is um, as valuable as heroin or cocaine,
0: One of the suggestions was to legalise the trade, in which case those that are trying to preserve the wildlife would almost harvest the ivory and keep the wildlife alive, keep the rhinoceros alive, or even, for that matter, paint the horn. And that way they could finance the preservation of the wildlife.
3: Initially, when I heard that view, I was like, oh, my goodness, that sounds fraught with potentials for corruption and all sorts of things. But the more I heard that argument, the more I kind of thought about it, because the private reserves in South Africa get no funding from the government, so they have to fund their reserves through tourism, through students coming and studying their rhinos and and things like that.
0: But there's another layer to this story, because what we have is Olivia Wolfe, a journalist, investigator, trying to fathom the reason why the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Harold Sackville, is involved. And you've layered this story now with a series of murders how much can you tell us about the intrigue that's taking place at this level?
3: Well, um, the the story initially starts off with four murders in four different countries um, and the one terrible secret that links them all. And it's difficult to talk about because I don't want to spoil it for your listeners and give away too much because, of course, the mysteries of the book unravel as Olivia Wolfe unravels them herself. But one of the themes of Prey is political corruption and how, you know, they get away with it. So, you know, the fact that um, a very senior member of the British cabinet is involved in something, um, a global trade that is horrific and illegal is pretty shocking in itself. But it's also um, what the story talks about is how um, such a dreadful trade can operate when it is controlled from from Vietnam and also to a certain extent China in South Africa. And the answer to that is bribery. Money exchanges hands. Favors are offered um, by these criminal syndicates within South Africa. And, you know, everyone from the guard at the gate who opens the gate and lets them in, the poachers, that is, all the way up through the line to people in government who turn a blind eye or don't take the right kind of action.
0: Now. There's another level of intrigue, if I can put it that way. Olivia Wolf ends up working with Detective Superintendent Dan Casburn, and there's a little bit of friction between those two. And there's also Olivia's uh, former lover, he's a Russian spy, Yushkov, and there's an interplay going on here. Again, how much can you tell us about what's occurring here?
3: Well, um yeah, the dynamic between that the those three characters I hope adds an element of conflict, friction, intrigue because Dan Casburn, who is the detective from a clandestine unit called the Global Threat Task Force based in London, he always sees Olivia as an obstacle cuz she's investigating what he's investigating. And he doesn't trust her.
0: She's a journalist. And Dan's role in many ways is to prevent Olivia from finding out about the political connection.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. You also then have the ex-lover, the one um, Yashkov, who um, Dan absolutely detests um, and despises because he believes he's a Russian spy. Um, And Olivia has always believed that he's been wronged and he isn't a spy. So, between the dynamic between the three is who should Olivia Wolf trust?
0: And this and brings us to the end of the story in many ways, because just when you think that Casburn and Wolf have made a partnership that is working, and in fact, Casburn uh, invites her onto the task force, we have a suggestion by Yushkov that Casburn can't be trusted. So we are left in uncertain territory about the relationship uh, between these three at the end of the novel.
3: Yes, yes. Well, again, I don't want to give too much away, but there are a number of times when I hope that as you're reading the book, reading Prey, that your view of Yushkov and your view of Dan Casburn, the detective, wavers. And by the end of the book, there is still a big question, but there is also um, a plot twist which we'll need to keep to ourselves at the moment so we don't spoil it.
0: But put it this way, Olivia is reliant on both Dan Casburn and Yushkov for her survival, and they actually have assisted her throughout this story but you've then got to work out what their motivations are for doing so. So that's something for the reader to look into. We're going to have to end the interview there. The novel is Prey, and there's a subtitle here, Four Murders, One Terrible Secret. The author is L.A. Larkin, and it's a clandestine press release. So, Louisa, thank you very much once again.
3: Oh, thank you. It's been a delight to talk about it with you.
0: You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3C-R.